illegal immigration, but not illegal immigrant. Today, Wednesday, April 3rd, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The Associated Press drops the phrase illegal immigrant. This advocate says it's about time. It's legally inaccurate. It's dehumanizing and it's racially charged. But what's a good alternative to describe an immigrant who's in the country illegally? We'll explore the debate and the options. Also today, what makes people who live in Latino neighborhoods more healthy than others? And later, fossilized footprints tell the 95-million-year-old story of a dinosaur stampede. This incident would have taken five minutes, if that. It's a snapshot in time, just like that. That's Ahead on the World from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. What's in a word? That's a question we lob at you today. And the specific word is illegal, as in illegal immigrant. This week, the Associated Press issued a style ruling against using the phrase illegal immigrant. And we're focusing on that ruling for the next few minutes because, one, it's so emblematic of the current sensitive debate over immigration. And two, because we at The World also wrestle with what to call those people who've come to be in this country illegally. So first, let's let the new entry in the AP Style Guide speak for itself. Illegal immigration, entering or residing in a country in violation of civil or criminal law, except in direct quotes essential to the story, use illegal only to refer to an action, not a person. Illegal immigration, but not illegal immigrant. Acceptable variations include living in or entering a country illegally or without legal permission. Now, many advocates for those who live here without legal permission have been pushing for this change for years. Prominent among them is Monica Novoa, who used to be coordinator for a campaign called Drop the I-Word. She's now director at Define American, which aims to open up the immigration discussion in the U.S. Monica, thanks for joining us. Why do you and so many others, uh, why have you found the I-Word offensive? Well, the I word, I think to start with, it's, you know, illegal, illegal immigrant, and it kind of gives the impression that it's actual legal terminology. And that's not the case. It's not legally accurate. The Supreme Court doesn't use it. Attorneys don't use it. Um, Internationally, in human rights law and the UN, um, the most often used term is unauthorized immigrant. Um, And so what we've seen is that it's not, it's legally inaccurate. It's dehumanizing and it's racially charged. We most often have seen that as use of the I word has climbed, so has anti-immigrant rhetoric and anti-Latino rhetoric and hate crimes. Ultimately, though, aside from making people not feel bad about their status as illegals, what is the difference in your mind between the phrase illegal immigrant and a person who came to the U.S. through illegal immigration? Well, The distinction there is that you're talking about a person Um, and whether you're using undocumented, unauthorized or describing someone as a person who has done X, Y or Z, that that's a lot more humanizing than using the term illegal immigrant, which kind of gives the impression that the whole entity of a person can be illegal. 
So we think that language is is a very important um, dynamic that really sets the tone of the debate. And if people are are being dehumanized and their stories aren't being told in a in a full way and with dignity, then we're not doing right by them. And that's not um, that's not the most professional journalism. What do you say to those millions of legal immigrants in the U.S. who have waited patiently for years to get their papers in order, paid thousands of dollars in fees for the privilege, endured years of separation from families and loved ones to comply with this country's laws? I mean, were they simply wasting their time and all this time they could have just waited for what seems to be a path to citizenship? Absolutely not. I mean, I think that what's happening now is that we need to take a closer look at how the immigration system is broken in so many ways. And I think that people that have been waiting to be reunited with their families are in the same fight as people who are undocumented and waiting to be reunited with their families. The system needs to be fixed for for everyone. Monica Novoa has campaigned for years to get the media to drop the phrase illegal immigrant. Monica, thanks very much. Thank you. And joining me now is the world's language editor, Patrick Cox. Uh, Monica Novoa seemed encouraged by the AP-style book change, uh, Patrick, uh, victorious even. Yeah, I think uh, the Drop the I Word campaign really has won a big victory here. Changing the AP is really big. I think we're going to find in newsrooms across the country that there will now be discussions about uh, following suit. And even if they don't, there are so many papers, especially the small town ones, that just run AP stories. They're going to look as though they have done. And now the New York Times today indicated through its public editor that it too is going to make a change, possibly not as sweeping as the AP change. So perhaps not an outright ban of illegal immigrant, but I think we'll, we'll see words like undocumented uh, being used an awful lot more by the Times. And, and, and in justifying this anticipated change, the public editor, Margaret Sullivan, said uh, these words, language evolves. And there's no question that language does evolve, but I think what's really evolving fast here are the politics. Right. Sullivan, the public editor at the New York Times. Now, these simple linguistic changes, I mean, does it tip a hat to something bigger? I mean, does it stop with newspapers and news agencies? Or are we all going to be changing, do you think? Well, I think uh, initially it's going to depend on your politics. You know, right now in Washington, if you're a Democrat, you've already dropped using the expression illegal immigrant in, in all likelihood. Most Democrats have. Whereas Republicans... A lot of them still use it. In fact, John McCain, who is one of the group of eight, the so-called group of eight who is working on immigration reform right now, he was asked at a public meeting just a couple of weeks ago to drop that expression, and he refused to do it. And he's one of the Republicans who who is working for change. But there are many other Republicans who use another expression, illegal alien. And by the way, that is an expression that is still used to this day by the immigration agency, the federal agency, ICE, to describe this group of people. Uh, Here's a headline from a news release they put out just a few days ago. Upstate New York woman convicted of harboring an illegal alien. So... This is newspapers we're talking about, style books. But what about the rest of us? What word are we supposed to use? I mean, we can't just follow John McCain and say we're not going to stop using illegal. And yet, are we really going to go around and use the phrase the I word? Right. And the AP, it is true, left a little bit of a void here, not just for journalists, but but also for the general public. So here are a few ideas from the foreign language media that put out papers in this country. Um, they have been, in some cases, skirting around these, these more regularly used terms for quite some time now. Koreans, they say illegal overstayers a lot. That reflects 
that many Koreans who are here illegally uh, didn't jump over any fences, but they overstayed their visas. Whereas in Punjabi, the Punjabi media in this country, they tend to avoid the word illegal, and they refer to um, people as living in hiding. Uh, the word hiding, in fact, comes up in a lot of foreign language uh, media. And then you have the Spanish language media that reflects all of the views, really, that the English language media has. There are many diverse views among them. Uh, many of them do tend to avoid the word illegal. The word undocumented comes up a, a, a lot. But there just simply isn't a general term that we can all agree on right now. Thank you, Patrick. You're very welcome, Marco. And to hear Patrick Cox's World in Words podcast, just go to theworld.org slash language. Latinos are at the center of the U.S. immigration debate, and they're also at the center of a puzzle that health researchers have been trying to solve for some time now. Americans of Latino origin tend to outlive their non-Hispanic white counterparts. This is especially true for those who live in Latino neighborhoods. Scientists have proposed many explanations. Well, now come some studies that suggest an intriguing new idea. Perhaps it has something to do with how these neighborhoods make people feel about themselves. Reporter Audrey Quinn has a story from New York. If you take the subway to the northern tip of Manhattan, you'll find yourself here. We're in Washington Heights right now on Broadway near 168th Street. That's Anna Abredo Lanza. She's a public health researcher at Columbia University. Washington Heights is a largely Dominican neighborhood. She says poverty here is worse than in most areas of the city. But there are certain health indicators here that suggest that Washington Heights is doing better than other neighborhoods. Now, people here are not healthy in all regards. But deaths from cancer and heart disease, they're lower in Washington Heights than in New York City overall. Infant mortality is also lower here. These better-than-average health numbers, it's something researchers have seen in other Latino neighborhoods in the U.S. There seems to be something about living in a largely Latino area that's at least partly helpful for health. Some scientists call it the barrio advantage, and Abredo Lanza considers it an important topic to study. There's increasing evidence that neighborhoods really do matter in terms of the health of residents. But what is it about Latino neighborhoods that might improve people's health? Scientists have proposed lots of answers. One likely reason, access to traditional foods, which may be better for you than processed American food. Also, in Latino neighborhoods, extended family members often live close to each other. That's something Kimberly Alvarez points to. She too studies health at Columbia University. If you have a wide circle of friends and family all, all around you, somebody out of those people will know where to get free health care or who the best doctor is. And, you know, oh, wait, I think I know what that symptom is. It might be this, you know. <laughs> but new research suggests there may be something else going on, something less obvious. Social aspects of these neighborhoods, they might actually cause biological changes in the body. Stay with me here. This is going to take a bit of explaining. Now, you might think that living in a neighborhood that's lower on the socioeconomic scale, like Washington Heights, would be harmful to your health. Studies have linked lower socioeconomic status with higher levels of stress. And that stress can be hard on your body. It can tax the immune system and make you more susceptible to colds, for instance. But here's the twist. A team at UC Berkeley recently found that how you feel about your social status could matter more than where you sit in the social hierarchy. Rodolfo Mendoza Denton's a Berkeley psychologist. He says it's kind of like the character Porgy in the opera Porgy and Bess. Who says, oh, I've got plenty of nothing, and nothing's plenty for me. 
And the basic idea is that that particular character is poor and recognizes that, but is protected by the fact that he's okay with that. And that's what Mendoza Denton found in his study. People who felt better about their place on the social ladder showed better signs of immune system health. He reasons that Latinos might gain this benefit if they live in a Latino neighborhood. Ethnic enclaves in particular have features that are unique in the sense that you get people who are experiencing some of the same troubles and issues that you are. Your struggles might feel more normal, so you're less worried about your social status and suffer less stress as a result. Here's another new idea for how Latino neighborhoods might biologically protect health through ethnic pride. David Amodio is a psychology professor at New York University. He conducted a study of black and Latino women. He found that those who felt more discriminated against showed greater biological signs of stress. But he made an interesting second discovery. Women who felt more pride in their race or ethnicity, they had a health bonus. They showed higher levels of a hormone that's known to promote resilience. It actually helps to promote cell growth and cell repair. So if you live in a place that encourages a strong ethnic identity, that might give your health a real boost. Back in Washington Heights, where you see Dominican flags and windows and hear Latin American music playing in the subway station, could this pride be part of why the neighborhood experiences better than average health? Colombia's Anna Abredo Lanza says, maybe. But she warns, as exciting as these new studies are, the conclusions are very preliminary. We really need a lot more work in this area. It's not been looked at very extensively. She hopes that once researchers do figure out what's bolstering the health of people in Latino neighborhoods, they'll use those findings to improve health in other communities. For The World, I'm Audrey Quinn in New York. Still ahead, the many layers of class, or is it class, on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Today and for the next four weeks, we'll be heading to Australia with our partners at the PBS program NOVA. Next week, NOVA begins a month-long series called Australia's First Four Billion Years. It explores the history of Earth from the unique perspective of that island continent. Well, today we examine something that happened in Australia's outback a long time ago and the scientific controversy it sparked today. NOVA's Ari Daniel Shapiro reports. Let's rewind our clocks a bit to 95 million years ago. Imagine this scene. You're at the edge of a watering hole in what today is northeastern Australia, and you're not alone. Over a hundred little dinosaurs are here. Most of them range in size from chickens to ostriches, and they're drinking peacefully, when all of a sudden a giant tyrannosaur tears out of the brush. Its teeth and claws flash as it races in for a meal. The little guys scatter for their lives, their feet digging into the soft mud. It's a dinosaur stampede. This incident would have taken five minutes, if that. It's a snapshot in time, just like that. 
and that snapshot's been preserved in the fossilized footprints at Dinosaur Stampede National Monument. John Taylor is a tour guide here, where an animated film of that stampede plays on a loop at the Interpretation Center. Next door are the fossils themselves, scattered across a giant slab of rock inside what looks like an airplane hangar. Taylor takes me there and points to the footprints. This event that you can see here right before your eyes, you cannot find anywhere else in the world. There's a single line of big tracks that were formed by the large meat-eating dinosaur. The rest of the rock is covered with tiny footprints made by the little dinosaurs that ran away. These tracks were discovered back in the 70s, and it took a team of scientists years to piece together what happened. The story told by these footprints attracts tourists from all over the world to this stretch of the outback. Trash bins in a nearby town are shaped like clawed dinosaur feet. The stampede even inspired a children's song. They had to run, run, run. There was a dinosaur stampede. But recently, someone stepped forward to question if this story is true. Yeah, so I thought perhaps it's not a stampede. Anthony Romilio is a paleontology graduate student at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. He didn't set out to challenge the traditional interpretation of the dinosaur footprints. The goal of his research was to study the fossils to figure out how dinosaurs moved their limbs. But he found himself hitting a brick wall. To his eye, the footprints just didn't fit with the standard view of what had happened there. It took me about six months of pure confusion you know, going, look, my research, it's just going nowhere. My supervisor said, look, just imagine you're the first scientist to come to the scene. How would you interpret it? And so Romilio took a fresh look at all those footprints. He thinks that the scientists before him misinterpreted the evidence, and he's got two basic contentions. First, remember that big marauding dinosaur that thundered onto the scene? Well, Romilio doesn't think it was a carnivore at all. The footprints that belonged to meat-eating dinosaurs were characteristic of long-toe impressions that were quite narrow, whereas the plant-eating dinosaur footprints were very short-toed and quite broad. And when he studied those big footprints, he found they had short, broad toes, which means, Romilio says, it must have been... The plant-eating dinosaur. He thinks it may have been one called Mudaburosaurus. The small dinosaurs would have had little reason to run away from this big plant-eater. Which brings us to Romilio's second objection, concerning all those small footprints. When he looked at them, it seemed that the little guys weren't running at all. They were swimming, he says, pushing themselves along in a stream as the water buoyed their bodies. Some of these animals, when they're being fully buoyed by the water, they're only able to just touch the river bottom with the tips of their toes. He shows me a 3D rendering of one of the footprints on his computer. Such a small part of the foot made an impression, he says, that there's not much to it. So this is one of the tippy-toe traces. Romilio suspects all those little footprints came from dinosaurs swimming in a stream over days or even weeks, not fleeing from a predator in a panic. These conclusions have sparked a lively debate among paleontologists. Some scientists think Romilio is onto something and question whether a stampede happened at all. But he's got a lot of critics, including Scott Hocknell, the chief dinosaur expert at the Queensland Museum. Just simply looking at the footprints isn't enough. 
Hocknell says you also have to consider the mud those footprints were left in. Let's take the big footprints, the ones that, according to the new interpretation, were left by a plant eater. When you look at the footprints, they look like big, round toes. But in fact, that's the mud being squished out from below the toes, between the toes, as the animal slamming its foot into the mud. Hocknell says Romilio's confused because he didn't account for how the mud interacted with the dinosaur's feet. Inside the museum's storage space, Hocknell wheels a mobile spotlight over to a cast of one of the big footprints and lights it up from a low angle to reveal its subtle contours. And right there, you see this triangular piece? That's the claw mark. There's only one type of animal that makes those sorts of footprints, and that's a meat-eating dinosaur. As for Emilio's argument that the little dinosaurs weren't running but swimming, ridiculous, says Hocknell. Underwater, a footprint in mud just doesn't last. When you put mud underwater, you put the foot in, you pull the foot out, and it forms what looks like a footprint. Give it 10 minutes, come back and see if you can actually even see the footprint. What happens is it all collapses. Which means, Hocknell says, if these dinosaurs were swimming, they wouldn't have been able to leave any impressions behind. And he's got new research in the pipeline, research he can't talk about yet, that he believes will clearly show the new interpretation to be wrong. But graduate student Anthony Romilio says he also has plans for more research, and he's not convinced by the arguments from the other side. Back at Dinosaur Stampede National Monument, tour guide John Taylor is skeptical of the swimming theory, but he says he's willing to change his tune if necessary. If they have the evidence to back that up, then that's what we'll start telling people. Because we're here as interpretive guides, we're not here to tell people um, our own personal beliefs. And no matter how the scientists resolve their dispute, he doesn't think it'll affect tourism. Because ultimately, this site leaves a lasting imprint on the human imagination of just what those dinosaurs were doing here 95 million years ago. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Dinosaur Stampede National Monument, Australia. You can let your imagination run wild. We've got photos of those dinosaur footprints at theworld.org. You can also watch a video of this catchy kid song. See if you can get it out of your head. They had to run, run, run. They had to hit top speed. They had to run, run, run. There was a dinosaur stampede. They had to run, run, run. They had to hit top speed. They had to run, run, run. There was a dinosaur stampede. By a lake, some wee dinosaurs long, long ago had been munching and drinking all day. When along came another with sharp points and claws and frightened the poor things away. They had to run, 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 they had to hit top speed, they had to run, 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 there was a dinosaur stampede, they had to run, 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 they had to... Right, I wonder where the fossil for the first earworm is. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a new survey claims there are seven layers of social class in Britain. The old class system may have been simpler. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class. I know my place. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, 
providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's a shocking crime, no matter where it's committed. Acid is thrown in someone's face, leaving the victim burned, maimed, and disfigured. Sadly, it happens more often than you think around the globe, and almost always the victims are women. Today, in India, for example, police are investigating an acid attack against four sisters. This is a kind of crime that's also too common in neighboring Pakistan. At least 150 acid attacks were reported there last year. Many more are not reported because victims are pressured by their community to keep quiet. A new law in Pakistan gives acid burn survivors some legal recourse, but as Binish Ahmed reports, the scales of justice are often stacked against them from the start. Dr. Hamid Hassan swings open the door of his examining room to call in his next patient. With the help of a nurse, a slight girl rises from a chair in the lobby. Dr. Hassan gingerly removes the girl's sunglasses and scarf to examine her injuries. He calls her daughter when he asks how she feels. In a small voice, Sidra Yasmin says she's fine looking up at the plastic surgeon only when he pulls at her eyelids. Dr. Hassan takes a deep breath and explains Yasmin's conditions. She has lost eyesight in the right eye, and even the left eye is not the best. Uh, She developed alopecia, for which a hair transplant was done. Half of Yasmin's face is burned. It's now a deep brown color, and her skin bulges into welts across her chest. Unfortunately, there is quite a bit of uh, disfigurement. She will need uh, other surgery. So far, Yasmin has had six operations. Her right ear is a hole in the side of her head, and the skin on her face is uncomfortably taut. But Dr. Hassan says the worst of her discomfort has passed. She has seen a lot of pain, a lot of pain. Once you throw acid and the concentrated acid just burns so quick that the nerve endings are burnt along with. It's been two years since acid was thrown on her, but Yasmin still fights tears as she recalls the trauma she faced. Yasmin had been assigned to overtime at the factory where she worked, but wasn't able to get a ride home. She was friends with her supervisor's daughter, who brought her to their house for the night. My friend and I had eaten dinner and gone to sleep. It was two in the morning when her brother came into the room when we were sleeping. He woke me up and said, come with me. I told him, no, whatever you have to say to me, you can say right here. Her brother started to tug at me and forced me to come with him. He then called out to his mother, who said, she's going to tell everyone what you tried to do. Throw acid on her. Even if she dies, we'll say, we don't know who did it. Yasmin doesn't know who brought her to the hospital. But when she woke up, her parents were there. Muhammad Javed, Yasmin's stepfather, says, when they first got to the hospital, Yasmin was unconscious. Clothes singed to her body, hair burnt off, lips melted into her face. He thought about seeking his own justice against the young man who attacked his then 13-year-old daughter. 
I used to think I should kill him, shoot him. But then I thought, I should do this the right way and take our case to court. Javed filed a lawsuit against the factory supervisor and her son. The father of eight remained resolute despite threats from the defendants to drop the case. They told me in front of the judge that they'd cut me up into little pieces and feed me to dogs. A lot of people threatened me. They said they'd shoot me. They called me on the phone and threatened me. But I wasn't shaken. I fear no one but God. Javed fixes TVs for a living. He had to all but close down his shop so he could travel two hours to and from court nearly every day for seven months. He says legal fees devoured all of his savings. Still, he refused to give up, even as the defendants offered him out-of-court settlements. They wanted to settle. They offered me a lot of money, but I didn't get greedy. They even said they'd take my daughter in marriage, make her their daughter. But if they were the sort to make her their daughter, then why would they have done this in the first place? I didn't take any interest in their offers. I decided that I was going to see this case through to its end. Javed got his payoff, he says, when the mother and son were sentenced to 3 and 14 years in jail, respectively, in addition to steep fines. But his case is not the norm. Wahid Ahmed Chaudhry, a lawyer representing Yasmin, says most people can't do what Javed did. In a lounge at the Lahore High Court, Chaudhry leans over a thick manila envelope stuffed with details of Yasmin's case. The main problem we have in these type of cases, the trial is very slow. Sometimes it will take four years, five years. Yasmin was lucky because her case was fast-tracked. Since her case, there has been another positive development for victims of acid attacks. Last year, a new amendment was added to the penal code that makes acid throwing a crime. Before that, perpetrators were charged with attempted murder. Lawyer Jodhri says that made it difficult for victims. You have to prove the intention of that person is to kill you. And it's easy from a cue side. You can say, if I want to kill him or to her. I can take pistol or a knife. Why should I throw a tester? The unanimous approval of the new law was a watershed moment for survivors who are now seeking legal recourse in record numbers. I would say the more cases you bring to court, despite the obstacles, the more uh, models and jurisprudence you set. It's going to take time. Valerie Khan Yousafzai has been campaigning for years to ensure asset throwers don't get off the hook because of legal loopholes. She heads the Acid Survivors Foundation of Pakistan. In just one year, the conviction rate against acid throwers has risen from 6 to 18 percent. Yusufzai calls that a huge improvement, given the recent upswing of horrific cases of violence reported against women. She credits the state with finally taking the issue seriously. You have this kind of dichotomy, you know, a paradox of huge cases of violence, but more laws, which is a clear message that the state is saying it's not okay. Secondly, you also have had an increasing number of women raising their voice, going to court, getting justice, more convictions, and and that does encourage other victims and women to speak up and not to accept this victimization. But even after the conviction of her attackers, Sidra Yasmin still feels victimized. She says the guilty verdict against the mother and son who threw acid on her offered a bit of relief, 
but no restitution. When I look at myself, I think their punishment is nothing. They're in jail, but they're in peace. They're still able to eat. They have no idea how hard things have been for my family because of them. Now that the two have filed an appeal, she's worried her family will fall further into poverty. For The World, I'm Binish Ahmed, Islamabad. That story was reported with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. And now how a pop star is hoping to raise millions of dollars for girls' education in Pakistan and elsewhere. That's the focus of our GeoQuiz today. The pop star is Madonna, and the painting she's hoping to auction off to generate those millions is called Three Women at the Red Table. We've posted a photo of the Cubist masterpiece at theworld.org. It's by French abstract painter Fernand Léger, and when he painted it in 1921, Léger was living in a Paris neighborhood on the left bank of the Seine. Can you name it? It's where many Americans flocked after World War I to be part of the artistic scene there. And its name comes from a mountain where, according to Greek mythology, the nine Greek goddesses known as the Muses lived. We're back with the answer in a few minutes. First, though, to Brazil, where police say they've arrested the three men responsible for a horrific crime in Rio de Janeiro. An American woman and her French companion were abducted and held for six hours after getting on a public transit van in Rio. She was gang-raped, and both victims were severely beaten and robbed. The story is eerily reminiscent of the gang-rape that sparked massive protests in India just a few months ago. Jacqueline Pitengui directs the Brazilian advocacy organization Sepia, which focuses on violence against women. The reaction has been of horror and at the same time deep surprise, not only to the violence, the disaster upon this woman and her companion, but also because before it happened to her, the same man had raped another woman, and that woman had gone to a special police station to attend victims of violence, and they didn't start an investigation. What have people been saying about what appears to most objective views a a double standard, taking care of the American woman who was raped, but not the Brazilian student? I don't think people are perceiving this as a double standard, because this is not the norm. Usually these police stations would have persecuted or started an investigation. The head of the police officer and another one were immediately fired. This is not a regular behavior that happens in these kind of public transportations called vents, which are some sort of alternative to regular buses. Can you just explain a little bit more about these informal buses? I mean, I guess we'd call them gypsy cabs here in the U.S., but these are more like gypsy vans. How did these informal bus systems work? The public transportation does not meet the demands, especially at rush time. So these vans started working, and they're much uh, faster because they don't stop so many places. And now what this episode is also showing is that, that there has been a lack of control to know who is conducting each van. This van was not registered as a van to do public transportation. And these guys had rented it from a person who apparently has nothing to do with what happened. So there is a number of irregularities that uh, make you feel very vulnerable in relation to the lack of control of what happened. What can you tell us about the three men in custody? 
apparently they did not have criminal records. They were a low middle class. They were not, you know, very poor. Mm. You just have a three a perverted men together using a means of transportation to get some money and also to rape women. Because today, I was just reading the newspaper and a third victim came out. Wow. And she took the van uh, to go back to her house. Apparently, it's an 18 years old girl. And she was raped, but she didn't tell her parents. She didn't tell anyone. She was afraid to tell. She said she took a bath. So this is possible that other women might have suffered this same kind of violence. After that horrific rape and murder in India, many activists there really focused heavily on the legal shortcomings that don't give women enough protection in India and victims justice. For you, what's the most important thing that needs to be addressed in Brazil to address the issue of sexual violence? Well, I think the most important thing to be addressed is the change of culture. I mean, I would say that Brazil is advanced. We do not have honor killings. But I think that the the change of culture in terms of masculinity, the idea of superiority over women, it's particularly dangerous in a moment that more and more women are equal to men in so many spheres of life. So I think that a cultural change is very much needed. Now, in terms of immediate goals, we should really make sure that these special police stations for which uh, women's movements have fought so much, they, sh they have to work. You cannot have a police station where a woman go make a complaint and nothing happens. Jacqueline Pitangui, sociologist and director of the Brazilian advocacy group Sepia, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. We've been tracking stories about violence against women around the globe at theworld.org slash worldgender. If you have a story to share about safety on transportation in your city, please add your comments there or tweet using the hashtag worldgender. Let's get back now to that Cubist painting we mentioned earlier, the one Madonna is auctioning off to raise money for girls' education in countries like Afghanistan and Pakistan. Three Women at the Red Table is expected to sell for millions of dollars. It's by a French artist and dates back to 1921. The painting is by artist Fernand Léger. Fernand Léger means a lot to me because my father, who is a painter, studied with him in the late 1940s in Paris. In fact, my father met Léger for the first time at his studio in the Montparnasse neighborhood of Paris. That's the world's Adeline Cyr. And Montparnasse was in those days home to many great artists like Chagall, Picasso, Braque, and others. Now, this 1921 painting, Three Women at the Red Table, my father says it's interesting because it sort of marks the end of geometric abstraction, and you can really distinguish female bodies around the table in that painting. My dad saw his revered teacher, Fernand Léger, for the last time in the early 50s, not long before Léger died. Uh, when my father told him that he had stuck with painting, Léger said to him, well, I hope it's not abstract painting because we invented abstraction and it's dead. As for Montparnasse, the iconic restaurant La Coupole still stands, but don't look for a nice loft or artist studio there because it's not bohemian territory anymore, okay? Those private cobblestone alleys covered with ivy uh, only go to high bidders these days. In fact, the kind that may be bidding for three women at the red table when it comes up for auction. 
Oh, and one more thing. Montparnasse, you may have guessed, is the answer to today's Geo Quiz. That's for the painting I see the women. I just don't see the table. Merci beaucoup and thank you. The world's Adeline Cyr. It's Paris and it's April. It's April in Paris. And this is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman and this is The World. Some say Britain is obsessed with class. And according to a new survey conducted by the BBC, the nation now has more than just the traditional three classes, upper, middle and working class. Try seven. The world's Clark Boyd's been taking a look at the survey results. It's called the Great British Class Survey, and it's billed as the largest study of class in Britain. More than 150,000 people participated. Class traditionally has been defined by occupation, wealth, and education. But this survey measured not just economic capital, but also social and cultural capital. Who do you hang out with as part of your real and virtual networks? Do you go to rock and roll gigs, hip-hop concerts, or the opera? Mike Savage of the London School of Economics worked on the survey. One of the most interesting findings is the existence of a quite a small elite at the top, only 4%, extremely wealthy. And if you set that against the precariat, the 15% at the bottom, I think there's quite a striking tale about um, social divisions in modern Britain. The survey found that 39% of Brits don't fit into traditional class categories. Those categories were the basis for a classic comedy sketch from the 1960s called Three men on class. Imagine a very short man wearing a cloth cap and scarf, standing next to a medium-sized man in a pork pie hat and raincoat, standing next to a very tall man, John Cleese in fact, in a bowler hat and a suit. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class. I know my place. Not so much anymore, apparently. This new survey breaks the middle class out into a variety of different categories. They're stratified less on economic lines and more on social and cultural lines. Sociologist Fiona Devine. We're trying to capture that fuzziness now in the middle. Class is a very important part of of British society and has been for a long time, and we're trying to understand how that's changing. Some are praising the survey as an accurate reflection of the new divisions in British society. Others say the survey too closely equates income mobility with social mobility. In other words, just because you earn more money doesn't mean you move up in social rank. And others have this to say about the survey. Class is almost totally irrelevant in modern Britain. Jill Kirby is the former head of a British right-leaning think tank. The sociologists compiling this material seem to really strain to find these seven different categories and then, I think, really struggle to put people into a specific category. The BBC has also offered up an online version of the survey. It's called the Great British Class Calculator. Of course, to my American ears, that sounds downright Dickensian and, well, kind of irrelevant. After all, we don't have classes in America, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and all that. Do it right, and you too can sit at the table with the Grantham family at Downton Abbey. You do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And, of course, I'll have the weekend. What, What is a weekend? For the world, this is Clark Boyd. At theworld.org, we've got our five-part series called Beyond Class. It's a look at evolving class issues in Britain and beyond. Now, here's one English tradition that hasn't changed all that much, the ringing of church bells in the rolling hills of southwest England. Ibi Caputo of WGBH has the story. 
The 1,500 residents of Chagford, a quaint town in Devon County, are used to the sound of bells coming from the church in the center of town. On wedding days, Sunday mornings, and Tuesday nights, when the bell ringers practice. The church, St. Michael the Archangel, dates back to 1261, though the present granite structure, including the tower that holds the bells, was mostly built in the early 1400s. We can trace them right back so far as 1482. John Bint, one of the church bell ringers, has compiled a history of the church's bells. It's like a continuous unbroken tradition going back to the late 1400s that we're carrying on here, really. My name is Lawrence Benny, and I'm one of the Chagford church bell ringers. Benny has been ringing at St. Michael's for 34 years. His mother was a ringer, and so are his children. He's my son, and he's my son. They started learning far younger than I, I started to learn. And, well, Stuart, he's, he's a far better ringer than I ever will be. Trouble's going. It's gone. Stuart and Benny's other son, Graham, stand in a circle with six other ringers. They each firmly grasp a thick rope attached to one of the eight bells in the tower above. Each of the ringers pulls their rope in clockwise order until Stuart, who's conducting tonight, calls out a different bell sequence. At Stuart's command, the first bell that is called, in this case the sixth bell, holds off, and the second bell that is called, the seventh bell, cuts in without interruption. Well, he's actually calling out the changes of the bells. So... He'll, he'll have either a, a, a set pattern that he'll ring to or he'll make up one as he's going along. So we all have to be have our wits about us to make sure we do it right. Right, we'll go up and show you the bells. A steep, spiral, stone staircase leads up the tower to the belfry where eight bronze bells are suspended between massive oak beams. You'll go in any tower... In, in Great Britain, and um, you'll find that the, the bells are hung in a similar way, whether it be on a, an oak frame such as this or um, a new modern steel frame in other towers. On the side of each bell is a huge wooden wheel attached to the bell's top. The wheels are what give the ringers the leverage they need to keep momentum and swing the heavy bells. The heavier the bell, the larger the wheel. The largest wheel is attached to the tenor. That's the tenor bell there. That's the big one. That's, that's the one that weighs 1,800 weight. At 475 pounds, the treble bell is the lightest. Nearly all church bells are made out of uh, a bronze and that's what gives them their distinctive tone and sound. So they are actually all tuned to a, to a musical note, but they also have all these harmonics inside them, which, uh, which is all part of what the bell is all about. My name's Julia Endicott, and I've been the captain here since 1977, and I took over from my father, Percy Rice. Every team of bell ringers has a captain, Percy Rice became captain in 1939 and kept the position until two years before his death. Like an inheritance, bell ringing often passes from generation to generation. We're very lucky here because we've got such a lot of young people and it's thriving where a lot of towers are struggling. But St. Michael's is not without its own struggles. 
In 2000, the church architect discovered that the five oak foundation beams that hold the bells were badly rotted by moisture that had seeped in from the porous granite. We um, had to raise £50,000, so we, we had a concert, didn't we? Raised a lot of money. After 11 months of silence, the bell frame was fixed just in time for Christmas, continuing a 600-year tradition. Next time. For The World, I'm Ibi Caputo, Chagford, England. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Back tomorrow. Join us then. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.